You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. So we begin our new series. Um, It's been a while since we started a new series. I guess that's not actually true. Feels like it's been a while since we've started a new series. We uh, broke up Mark a couple of times, but we've been in Mark for the last, I don't know, almost two years. And now we're going to spend six weeks in Genesis. And our goal here is not to go through Genesis 1 through 3, chronologically and parsing every single verse and and looking at it in that way. We're gonna look at Genesis in terms of what are some of the high points? What is Genesis one through three trying to to tell us? And, And really what we're asking is, what does God want us to know? What is God revealing about who he is? What is God saying about what humanity is? What is God saying about life? Um, And so this morning, we're going to start and actually start in chapter two, which seems a little backwards, but I want to start with a a small question. What does it mean to live, right? What is the meaning of life? Um, Now, I'm I'm not going to pretend like I'm about to give you some profound answer that it's going to suddenly make everything better and clear and some of those existential questions and urges that you have are suddenly gonna go away. But I do think that Genesis has some really profound and significant things to say to us if we'll let it. Right, so Genesis 2 verse seven, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now, I, I wanna make a, a real quick note up front. In Genesis and in much of the Old Testament, um, right, there's some, some language ambiguity going on here, and, and the reason why is Genesis one through three is poetry. It is uh, Hebrew art. And with that, there's some play on words, some very intentional play on words that are happening here. And one of those plays is the word uh, Adam, which is Adam, which means humankind, it's humanity. But most translations, including the RSV here, are going to translate it man. And when we see man, we often hear male. And that can cause some problems because as we're reading Genesis 1 and 2, we'll read things like, and God created Adam in his image. Male and female, he created them. And, and 
we can hear things like, oh, only males, only men are in the image of God. And that is uh, profoundly untrue. It is not what the Hebrew scriptures are trying to say at all. It is a misunderstanding caused by some of our own uh, tendencies towards patriarchy and misogyny and us wanting to read the text a certain way that the Hebrew writers and readers just simply did not have in mind. We'll deal with some more gender stuff as we go through Genesis 1 through 3. Not our task for today, but I, I just want to upfront give you that caveat and let you know that man here is the language for humanity. It is the human race. And so I may substitute that in, even though you might see something different on the screen. And so God breathed into the nostrils of humanity, of Adam taking him from the mud, the dust, the, the soil of the ground, and spiriting is literally the word here. Spiriting life into him. And it was then that human became a living being. Right, it, it wasn't just the dirt. It wasn't just the stuff. And it wasn't just the spirit. It was both that made Adam, Adam. And so what does it mean to live? Well, last Sunday we celebrated resurrection. We all gathered together. We had some mimosas. Uh, some of you had a couple too many. I saw y'all. I'm watching y'all. Thank you for laughing at that. I appreciate that. The ones that aren't laughing are uncomfortably like, is he talking about me? I'm not talking about you. There was no one who had too many that I saw. If you did, you controlled yourself very well. Splendid job. Um, and we're derailed and we're like three minutes in. It's fantastic. So last Sunday, we celebrated resurrection. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, but we all also pointed forward to the great hope that we have of resurrection. And here's the problem. Modern Christian faith has no idea what that means. We're like, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Woo! We're like supposed to be happy about that, right? I, I don't really know why. Like this one guy died and then he didn't die anymore. And that's fantastic news. For us, somehow. Uh, and so here's what modern Christian faith, particularly like in Western culture, has somehow done. Uh, I, I talk about this all the time. I don't know why. It's fodder for stories, I guess. I was a teacher for eight years, and I taught 16 and 17-year-olds who are struggling with their faith, who grew up in a bubble of faith, and who are now going like, wait a second, what my parents said and what the world says or what the Bible says or whatever, like that's not lining up, and so they just have all types of great questions and thoughts, and I like to mess with that a little bit. I like to poke the bear, as it were. And so one of the questions I would consistently ask them is, hey, we're a room full of Christians, right? You would, most of y'all would claim to be Christians. It was a Christian school, by the way, in case you're wondering, like, what is he talking about? I didn't teach math, I taught Bible. Sorry, context is important. <laughs> like, no, no wonder he's not a teacher anymore. That dude got fired. <laughs> No, 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 no. So it was, a, it was a Bible class. We were supposed to talk about these things. And so it was a group full of Christians who grew up in a Christian school and Christian churches and who would, uh, most of which would call themselves Christians. And I would ask them the very simple question, hey, what happens to Christians when they die? And they would emphatically, I know this one, easy peasy, done, they go to heaven. Okay, cool. Next question, are they dead? And you could see like, uh-oh, wait a second. No, they're not dead. 
Huh, okay, so wait. So when someone dies, they're not dead. They go to heaven, and yet, where's their body? It's in a hole in the ground, rotting and decaying. And that's life. Huh, that's a real weird definition of life. Especially when we look at what the Bible says life is. God takes the stuff of the earth and he breathes his spirit into it and only then is Adam a living being. See, modern Christianity has completely uh, uh, severed the spiritual life and the material life and this has caused us all types of problems in trying to follow Jesus in 2022. It's caused us some real significant problems in terms of like, hey, justice really matters. Like how you're treating other human beings actually really matters, right? Big questions like that. Um, We tend to do things, and I apologize if I'm stepping on toes this morning. I'm really, I'm honestly not. I have a lot of compassion towards this sentiment, but we hear things like at a funeral, it's not a funeral, we should celebrate. It's a graduation ceremony, Huh, they don't look graduated, they look plastic. They look like we're trying to cover up the decay that's already taken hold of their body. And we pretend like it's something else and we call it life. Resurrection matters because God cares about stuff. God cares about earth, God cares about physicality. We've unhelpfully made following Jesus too religious. And what I mean by that is that it's too spiritual. There's this secular world that we can like either ignore or indulge in, but somehow doing either, right, is is unchristian or not. If I really wanna follow Jesus, then I'd better not watch certain movies. And if I really wanna follow Jesus, then I better not drink certain things. And if I really wanna follow Jesus, then, right, and so we have this demarcation between the world we actually live in and spiritual, spiritual life. And so what that does to you guys who aren't pastors, who don't get to just go into your nine to five and be spiritual is you have to go to work and you have to stand around a water cooler or some crappy coffee that's not nearly as good as the stuff that I made y'all this morning. <laughs> um, And you have to wrestle with this like, man, where is God in the boringness and the ordinary stuff of life? Like, I need the heavens to split open and God to come down and do something magnificent because it feels like he's nowhere to be found. So we over-spiritualize following Jesus. So then what is life and what does it mean to truly live? How should we be spending our days when we spiritualize the world, we ignore it. When we, when we make it all about religion, we ignore the world. The world is an evil thing that we have to somehow cast off, be afraid of, stay away from. Or we try to muddle through it and dodge bullets as we await for that day when we can somehow finally die, thank goodness we're dead, and go to heaven. It's not what it means to follow Jesus. It's not what Jesus ever says. It's not what Genesis says. Or... We secularize the world. There is no God. And so we then see the world around us as nothing but atoms and molecules and stuff to be used for our own exploitation and delight and pleasure and greed and so forth. We manipulate the stuff of earth for our own ends. And so the spiritual life, the religious life, denounces life, whereas the secular life 
embraces all life has to offer, but also says, this is all life has to offer. We're dying. See, okay, so again, I'm going to step on some more toes here. Uh, right? We can, we can look at art. We can look at music. The religious life, the spiritual life is contemporary Christian music. Certain radio stations here in Houston that have certain letters might play this type of music. And the problem with this type of music is not that the music's bad, it's that so often this music is detached from the real world. It's all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns because Jesus is my victory. Hallelujah, amen. I'm dying of cancer, but Jesus is my victory. And there's no nod to the reality of suffering. There's no nod to the reality of the physical life we endure. This is the contemporary Christian music life, right? The secular life is the, it's the more fun life. This is the YOLO life. This is the one most of your radio stations were tuned into earlier this morning. This is the you only live once life. This is the bleached life, all white seats, cocaine chic life, right? Thank you all for the mid-2000s rap reference. I appreciate the, the ones who snickered. I know you're now over 30. Congratulations. <laughs> this is that you only live once get all that life has to offer, sunglasses and Advil type of living. And it says, hey, this is it. When you die, there's nothing more, so just use the world around you. And I'm here to suggest that is not life either. So then what is life? I'm gonna submit to you that life is two things. One, life is embodied. And this is the one I feel like if you grew up in and around the church, if you've heard Christian stuff before, this is probably the one you struggle understanding or believing or just walking around the world filling your head with every day. Like real, actual life. Like the, the type of life that Jesus came to give, the type of life that he died for is embodied. It is fleshly. It is filled with blood and dirt and smells and taste and heat and cold. It is the, the life of stuff. And we see this in verse eight. This is not just spiritual this is embodied, and this life is embodied with communion with God. It's embodied spirituality. This is the meaning of life with God. It's not spiritual, it's actual, real, material life. Watch this, verse eight. All right, so remember, as we're reading this, this is God's original intention for humanity. Like God is like, hey, I'm gonna create something and it's gonna be good and it's gonna be beautiful, right? And we know that something goes wrong in chapter three, and we're gonna discuss that in, in later sermons. But until we get to the thing that's gone wrong, let's acknowledge that this is what God looked at and said, yes, this. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Real cool side note, has nothing to do with anything other than this, right? This word garden is translated into the Greek from a Babylonian or Persian word that means, uh, like they had these like really cool hanging gardens and they would call them, we would translate it as paradises. Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, turns to the thieves and he says, you will be with me in the garden. You will be with me in paradise. He's not talking about heaven. I learned that from a devout Orthodox Jewish man, not from a Christian. Christianity is embodied. Sorry, side note. 
planted a garden in the east and there he put the human whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, life is a world given by God for communion with God. They were never meant to be two separate things. The way that you enjoy God, Adam, is you participate in the life of the garden. You participate in the life of the world. You enjoy the pleasant things. You taste the pleasant things. This is pleasing to me. All that exists is God's gift to humanity in Genesis chapter two. All that's there is God's gift. Take and eat. So I unintentionally, uh, Friday was Earth Day. Did y'all know that? Friday was Earth Day? I think Friday was Earth Day, right? Someone give me, okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, good. Well, someone's like, it wasn't Friday, it was Wednesday. What is this guy talking about? So I, I read this morning, um, like stumbled upon it. There was a, a Buddhist who um, self-immolated on Earth Day outside of the Supreme Court. But that means they set themselves on fire. Suicide, essentially. They wouldn't call it that. They would say it's offensive to call it that. So I apologize if, if that offended. Um, so the question becomes like, wait, wait, why? What are you doing? Well, if you, if you explore some of the beliefs of Buddhism, one of the, the ideas that they have, one of the ideals that they have is like, yeah, there's some kind of like physical world, but they teach that, that reality is really just an inner sensation. And so you, what you wanna do is you wanna turn inwardly in order to really begin to understand what's going on externally. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I would say for Christians, much of that is similar. And, and yet, they continue to go a little bit further to say that because of this, what's outside of you doesn't actually really matter. Physicality doesn't actually really matter. It matters in the sense that you experience it, but it doesn't matter in the sense of like grand scheme of things. And oh boy, does that sound familiar. That is evangelical Christianity to a T. Bodies don't matter, stuff doesn't matter. It's all gonna go away anyways. And so the question becomes, why not do exactly what this Buddhist monk did? If you're just gonna go to heaven when you die, once you believe in Jesus, this world's crummy, the next one's so much better, why don't you just off yourself? Another fantastic question from the mouth of a 17-year-old, by the way. And we can, uh, uh, well, because uh, suicide is bad. Yeah, but if death is so good and heaven is so great, then why is suicide so bad? Isn't suicide just a gateway into a better life? Isn't suicide just really life? God help us if that's what we think, Christians. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches us that death is terrible. Death is the great enemy of God. Death is the thing that absolutely needs to be destroyed and whether we realize it or not, death is the thing that is, is hanging its ugly head over us 24 seven. The material world matters Genesis anchors us in the life of soil and earth. Life, real life, true life is material. Jesus affirms this in the grandest way possible. It's what we're meant to be celebrating every Christmas. It's not Jesus' birthday. Happy 2023, third birthday, Jesus. That's a lot of candles. <laughs> 
It's the day that God, who created all things, entered into and became his own creation. God loves stuff so much, he became stuff. God loves blood and bones and organs so much, he became blood and bones and organs and praise be to Jesus, he exists that way today, resurrected in all of his glory in a physical body. Taste or or touch, Thomas, feel. It's physical, it's real, it's material. Jesus wasn't some ghost who pretended to be like, this is a body. Jesus was actually really resurrected and he said, I'm coming back. Death does not have the final say, I'm coming back. And and maybe that means when I die today, I'll go to heaven to be with Jesus, but I certainly won't stay there forever and ever and ever because when Jesus comes back, guess who's coming with him? It was me, I'm coming with him. And I hope you are too. Jesus affirms the material world by becoming a part of the material world and oh my gosh, how much does he love us? So much so that he would become one of us. Not like in some sort of legal way, not just in some like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll I'll pretend to be one of you. Like Jesus actually really became human. How human, Brandon? How human did Jesus become? So human that he died. The giver of life died. He allowed himself to be overcome by death. What is that? Wow. He was really, actually, fully human. He wasn't just pretending. He didn't just look human. He didn't just act human. They didn't just think he was human. He was human. And the gospels affirm this over and over and over. But we're not in the Gospels, we're in Genesis. And just lest you think that material stuff is not good, let me rattle off some stuff from Genesis chapter one. It's too much to put on the screen. Um, I'm just gonna skip around. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, literally the Hebrew word for land, not, right, not earth, even though the two can be like synonymous. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and then let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth put forth vegetation and plants that yield seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also and God set them in the firmament of the heavens to put light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the cattle according to their kinds and everything that creeps upon the ground to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, a sixth day. You know what God does on day seven? He rests. It's the beginning of chapter two. Why does he rest? Is he tired? Nope. Is he worn out? Nope. He's done. It's good. God didn't create us or the earth that we inhabit to exist in heaven forever and ever and ever. He created us as human beings to live and breathe and work and play and enjoy the delights of life. And he looks at it and he says, yes, this is good. So what does it mean to live? It means to be embodied. But it's not just that. It also means to be in communion with God. Because either of these two things taken on its own is no good, right? We can't have just spiritual life and we can't have just secular life. We need both of these things together. And so verse, or sorry, chapter two, verse 15, God says, or Genesis says, Let Lord, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. There's some beautiful conversation that needs to be had about some of the language that's used of what humanity's responsibility was in the garden. Some of this dominion language that sounds like forceful and is, is not dominion language at all. In fact, there's some really beautiful poetic stuff that's going on with what God does cre- to creation, which is overcoming the darkness and chaos of creation in order to make it beautiful and good. And then he puts humanity in it and is saying, I want you to do the same thing. Right? Dominion and rulership over creation is not about exerting our authority or power. It's about caretaking. It's about causing the world to flourish. What does God do to creation? He blesses it over and over and over again in chapter one. And he expects humanity to turn around and bless it as well. That was for free, side note. So the Lord God puts him in the garden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded humanity saying, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. And boy, is that an understatement of a translation. Uh, the, the way the Hebrew says this is eating, eat. This is, this is the first command given in Genesis, by the way. The first thing that God says to humanity is go and enjoy the garden. Consume it, partake of it, delight in it. And as you do, delight in me. If you have children, right, no one, well, okay, hold on, time out. We live in a broken and fallen world and children are broken and fallen just like all of the rest of the world, just like us. Okay, so there's a caveat to this. But when you have a child, you give them a gift and part of what that is is you want them to just enjoy the gift, right? There's, there's no strings attached. There's no like, okay, but remember who gave you that gift, right? Like enjoy the gift, but you never want them to confuse the gift with you. 
You never want them to love the gift more than they love you. And you don't care if as they enjoy the gift, if they're like talking to you or paying attention to you, that's not the point. Right, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, hey, go and enjoy the garden. And as you do so, you will just by default enjoy me and I will enjoy you and love reciprocates among God and man. And it's beautiful. The material world exists so that God can make himself known to us. And it also exists to make humanity's life community or communion or union or relationship with him. It's one of the reasons we did mimosas on Easter. We can enjoy life. It's one of the reasons we have this giant buffet of sugar stuff when you walk in the door. We can eat and drink and enjoy one another and enjoy God at the same time. This is not just like, okay, I guess we'll allow it. Like this is what God wants for us. When you look at the language of the, the Old Testament prophets that describe the kingdom of God, it is a feast. It's not a monastery where we live in a cold cell of concrete and pray and beat ourselves because we thought bad thoughts. That is not life. And whenever life today is not that, because sometimes it's obviously not, we need to remember that this is the very thing that Jesus came to restore and to give us. Communion with God is material and it's embodied, but obviously we're not in the garden today, right? Like obviously this has all gone wrong. So what do, we, what do we make of this? Well, not all of the garden food was good, or at least good for food, I should say. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So there stands a tree in the middle of humanity that was forbidden from eating, a tree that represented a world apart from communion with God. A world that enjoyed the world just for itself. A world that delighted, tried to delight in material things without also delighting in God. To secularize the world is to exploit it. Right, and we're talking about the world. Nine times out of 10, we're doing this to the other human beings around us. We're, we're treating them as if they exist for our own pleasure or our own advancement, our own exploitation. We mine the world in lust and greed and we suck the life out of it like vampires. And we try to enjoy life of the world apart from God. And instead, all we do is perpetuate death. And we do this so consistently and we've done this for so long. Like this is just the way that humans work. Look, if you want to get ahead, you got to crack a few eggs, right? Make an omelet, whatever, mixing metaphors there. <laughs> if you want to make an omelet, you got to crack a few eggs, okay? Um, we forget that creation is shot through with the presence of God. We forget that the, the Buddhist who self-immolated was filled with the image of God. That God delighted in him. That I pray God has mercy on him. And instead, we look at the world as our enemies, trying to hold us back and hold us down. It's us versus them. It's just not the case. This secularization leads to the abuse and the exploitation of God's gifts. And we use them for our own end. 
We treat the world around us with lust instead of love. Right, but also central to the fallen nature of this world is that we've fallen away from the awareness of the fact that God is actually really in everything. God is all in all. Right? Not that that tree is God, but that that tree is shouting the praises and the glory of God in ways that we just simply don't hear anymore. And that if we would stop and listen, we would glory and magnify the Lord who makes the tree go, uh, grow, that sustains the tree and sustains us. When we think of God in religious terms or overly spiritual terms, if you want to hear it that way, we oppose the very author and sustainer of material things. Our error is not that we've preferred the world to God, but instead we've stripped God from the world, saying that he has no place in it. And so when we lose this version of life, a version of life that is like the material world enjoyed in communion with God, we lose life with God. I would make the case that we lose life. All that life is meant to be, we cease to truly live. (laughs) We become those who look to dead and dying things to sustain us and we fill our refrigerators with carcasses. or turkey meat. But in both of these errors, we lose the fact that everything around us is actually really sacred, if we'll give them space to be. Everything around us is sacramental, proclaiming the glory of the Lord. Everything is imbued with the grace and beauty of God's love and delight in each and every one of us. The redemption Jesus offers is to help us recover what we've lost. When Jesus comes and says, hey, I am the life of the world, he doesn't mean, hey, I'm gonna pluck you out of it and bring you to this place in heaven forever and ever. I'm gonna actually restore what has been lost. I'm gonna bring you back to the garden, which is why if we were to go to the end of the Bible, the end of the story, what do we find? A rich, flourishing, bountiful garden where humanity lives in the presence of God in a material world in communion with the Lord. We know that things have gone wrong. This is exactly what Jesus is restoring. This world and not some other world, this life and not some other life, these were given as communion with God. These are our gifts. It's only through this world and this life by God transforming them into communion that humanity was meant to be. This is what it means to live. So what are the implications for this? I wanna give you just a couple real practical things because this is all very nice and heady and theological, right? Stuff matters, bodies matter. It's, It's why Christians buried their dead. They expected the dead bodies to actually like go back from dirt to reform and become real humans again with teeth and eyeballs and the whole thing. But more than that, right, that means that today, right now, your bodies matter. Maybe more importantly, the the bodies of your neighbor matter. There's some profound stuff going on right now. Uh, The the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, right, traces the effect that trauma has on your actual real physical body. Like the, the, the trauma we do to other people is like changing the way their bodies behave. 
bodies matter and they should matter to us. We should take care of them. We should nurture them. We should somehow find a way to cause them to flourish. We should really actually love our neighbors is what I'm trying to say. We should stand up for things like racism and injustice. We should care how the bodies of the people around us are treated. We should also glory in diversity Rather than expecting every, everybody to look and act like my body does, we can find the beauty in the diversity of cultures and images and colors and all of it. Your life, even in the ordinary parts, matters. It's sacred. And God is meeting you there. When you wake up in the morning and you go through your groggy morning, probably a little cranky Monday routine, like one of the things I'm hoping you'll take with you is somehow in this moment, and it may not be abundantly clear, like God is here and God, God wants me somehow to enjoy and delight in life and enjoy and delight in others and enjoy and delight in him in this moment. Perhaps especially in the ordinary parts. I, I've met so many people, my wife included, that have found gardening to be such a soul-enriching enriching practice. Just literally getting on your hands and knees and digging in dirt and somehow God meets her there. All these ordinary and plain places are shot full of God's presence. We don't need to go on a youth retreat where we turn the lights down and we turn on the smoke and we play the solo song and then God shows up. Ooh, some of y'all grew up Christian, I can tell. Some of y'all did, which is great. Right, God, God meets us in the ordinary, in the plain, in the, the Monday morning commute, and in the, I don't know, the, the coffee maker and water cooler moments. And number three, of course, the world matters. Right, we've we've got to figure out a way to be like champions of taking care of our world. Like, let's start with the city, like, how do we change the way we see the world around us? Is it just for our consumption? Is it just so that we can use it to get ahead, to have more fun or get more pleasure or get more stuff? Like, I don't know. I don't have answers. But I know that this tells us, like, hey, this stuff really matters and we should try and figure out ways to make it matter. I remember... Um, I got one more point and I'm done, I promise. Um, I was sitting in a class, a Bible class at a very conservative Christian college. And I had this amazing professor. His name is Dr. Rim. Um, he's a pastor uh, of a church in like Pittsburgh now or something like that. And he was the first person that exposed me to this idea that Jesus did not just come into the world to save you, right? He absolutely did, okay? So I'm not saying that he didn't, and nor was Dr. Rem saying that he didn't. But Jesus came into the world to save the cosmos. The, the earth, Paul says in Romans 8, is groaning for salvation, is, is longing for the day that humanity will be resurrected because when humanity is resurrected, it will also be resurrected and it can finally be liberated from the sin and death that we oppress it with. The world matters. Salvation is personal, absolutely. It is also cosmic. The world is being redeemed. And last point here that I hope you'll take with you this morning is that spiritual life is actually really embodied. 
it's so easy to separate our spiritual life and our physical life. Or maybe, let me say it this way, it's so easy to separate our spiritual life from the real world. And we do this, and I do this in all types of ways. And one of the, the just simplest ways to find profound communion with God is to recognize like, oh, like God is here with me when I'm washing dishes. Like really and actually, this is one of the great contributions of Brother Lawrence, that we can delight in the presence of God any place, any time, because God is revealing himself in all sorts of ways. It also means that like, you can engage God with your body. Like, I don't think we're the type of congregation that dances for the Lord very often. I dance for the Lord sometimes, y'all. No videos, sorry. I'm not gonna do it in front of you. And maybe that's silly. But I just find sometimes I'm just so filled with joy and delight in my living room, I just have to dance. And it's not good dancing, (laughs) but it's honest to God, joy-filled dancing, and it just makes me feel like God is delighting in me, like I'm really actually his child. It frees me up to let go a little bit and just be human. Maybe you get on your knees when you pray. Maybe you lift your hands. Maybe you open your hands. We can engage God with our bodies, we can engage in spiritual life. It, the Hebrews did it all the time. They didn't see a spiritual life apart from engaging God with your body. To worship God, you went to a place and you did something with your body. We've lost that. I think if we could recover that, it could be helpful in so many ways. Let me pray for us, I've gone way too long. Father, you are the maker of the heavens and the earth the sustainer of all things. You have, through Christ, made all things, sustaining all things. Help us to see the beauty and the goodness surrounding us, not just for its own sake, but so that we might delight in you. I know there is so much wrong with the world. There is so much ugliness and chaos and brokenness. And we we do long for resurrection, but bright spots are breaking through all over. Your glory is breaking through all over. Will you help us to see it? Will you help us to delight in you, to be close to you, to be near you? Jesus, thank you for becoming one of us, for stooping down so that you can lift us all up in creation with you. Will you remake us? Will you remake the world? And until you do, will you allow us to really be your family? It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.